Hello, you're listening to the Land and Climate Podcast. I'm Lauren Sneed, and in this episode, following on in our series on the past, present, and future of oil, we have Paul Stevens, Emeritus Professor of Petroleum Policy at the University of Dundee. We'll be talking about oil, how we got to be so reliant on it, and how long it will really take the world to wean themselves off it. Oil is a global discussion in which COVID and the Ukraine war have been instrumental in shifting narratives among, as Professor Paul Stevens sees them, the energy establishment. To get to net zero, you're only going to be able to do that by an extensive use of renewables, which will happen, but it's not going to happen overnight. We're not going to see a collapse in oil demand in the next 10 years. We'll see a decline, but it's unlikely to fall off the edge of a cliff. We spoke about the history of energy transitions. The current energy transition from fossil fuels to renewable electricity, the trigger for this was climate change initially and concerns about carbon emissions. Having said that, in the last few years, another trigger has been pulled, and this relates to urban air quality. And that has been very powerful in many countries. And the reason for this is simple. You don't need a panel of international scientists to tell you it's bad for your health. You just try and walk down the street in Beijing or New Delhi or many other cities, and you can immediately feel the impact. These two triggers having been pulled, you now begin to see reinforcing factors. And the reinforcing factors concern the lowering in the cost of renewables, partly the rise of electric vehicles. But the main reinforcing factor is the technology lowering the cost of renewables. Now, in my opinion, the current energy transition, has the speed of it has been very much underestimated by what I perhaps unkindly call the energy establishment. This is institutions like the International Energy Agency in Paris, the Energy Information Administration in Washington, the OPEC Secretariat in Vienna, and of course, the large international oil companies. Although having said that, to be fair to the IEA, in recent years, they have begun to change and to accentuate the increasing speed of the transition. Now, the energy establishment's reason for this is twofold. First of all, was vested interest. If you're an international oil company, it's very difficult for you to write a letter saying, dear shareholder, it's been nice knowing you, but we won't be together for much longer. There's also a degree of intellectual inertia there as well. If you've been singing from the same hymn sheet for a long period of time, it's difficult to change the tune. Now, the energy establishment have argued Ah, yes, energy transition, maybe it's happening, but it takes time. Now, in some cases, that was true. Uh, My favorite energy transition was the United States between 1865 and 1900, 35 years. And in that period, they switched from 80% wood, 20% coal, to 80% coal, 20% wood. But there have been more recent energy transitions, which have been very much faster. 
France is a good example. In France, the switch in the electricity sector from oil and coal to nuclear took about 10 years. In the UK, a similar switch to renewables in the electricity sector took about eight years. Now, the speed of the transition is very much determined by government policy. And this is an issue I'll come back to. It's a very important part of the, of the story. So in that context, what has been the impact of COVID pandemics and the Ukraine? First of all, let me qualify this by saying one of the problems talking about this is I'm talking about a global issue. But realistically, we have to make a distinction between the OECD the industrialized countries and the emerging market economies or the developing world. And this is an area in which the old joke, all generalizations are wrong, becomes very relevant. Let me start by looking at COVID. The COVID pandemic, which kicked off at the start of 2020, led to a global lockdown in most economies, creating a major recession. And this had a number of important consequences. First of all, there was growing concern over supply chain issues. So suddenly security of supply started to come back onto the agenda. At the same time, I think it was the death knell for what became known as the Washington Consensus. The Washington Consensus refers to the sort of ideas peddled by the IMF and the World Bank, whose headquarters, of course, are in Washington, that somehow all you had to do was leave everything to the market and everyone would live happily ever after. And I think the COVID pandemic drove a coach and horses through that argument. And population started to say, hang on a minute, governments need to do something about this. They need to take action. We need to see policy. So that was the impact of COVID. What about Russia's invasion of Ukraine? The point here, of course, is that it led to sanctions against Russian oil and gas exports, although one can debate the effectiveness of those sanctions. If you look at the history of such sanctions, it's not very promising. Generally speaking, energy markets have found a way to get around any sort of sanctions. But it has had significant impact. There are very few advantages to getting old, but one of the few advantages is you can say, yes, I was there, I remember it. And what I remember are the first oil shocks of the 1970s associated with the Arab oil embargo. And this had an enormous impact on the energy policy, particularly in the industrialized countries, and security of energy supply moved right up the agenda. Well, one of the consequences of Ukraine is that energy supply has really now come back onto the agenda big time, very reminiscent of the 1970s. And the significance of this is that if you think about renewables, they constitute domestic supply. Once you've got the equipment in place, then you don't have to import the sun and you don't have to import the wind. And so security of supply, energy supply, is leading governments to think about helping to promote renewables. A second consequence of the Ukraine invasion, I think, is that Russia 
as a supply source of energy is now off the agenda big time. People are not going to be willing to rely on Russian energy. And I'm not just talking about Western Europe here. But while Putin is in power in Moscow, it's fairly clear that Russia becomes an unreliable source. Now, of course, they're still supplying and they still have markets, although it's worth pointing out that to do this, they've had to offer massive discounts, particularly uh, on the oil price. So the overall impact of this is after a, a short term blip, and the blip I'm referring to is as governments seek to find alternatives to Russian oil and gas imports, uh, then they're starting to look at things like coal. I'm looking at Western Europe here. So start to renew coal or delay the closure of nuclear plants. Yeah, and there's a school of thought, though, isn't there, that the Russian war on Ukraine has happened in some ways too early to really hit fossil fuel demand because renewables aren't in a position yet to replace them. What do you think of that? Yeah, no, they're not in a position to replace them completely. But what we're going to see is a dramatic, after this blip, and I don't know how long that's going to last. That's an important question, how long it will last. But after a blip, you will start to see a tremendous boost to renewables, but not just renewables, also energy efficiency. And again, I'm going back to the early 1970s here, when the oil shocks forced consumer governments to go massively towards energy efficiency. The classic example was Japan. And I fully expect the same thing to happen now. Now, Renewables are not going to replace oil and gas overnight because, as you rightly say, there's simply not enough of them. But we're talking here about a boost, a speed up of the energy transition. And this will be driven largely by government policies. I think there's another dimension to this as well, which will, will be reinforced. And this is the concern about energy poverty. It's worth mentioning that a third of the world's population lacks access to commercial energy or reasonable access to commercial energy. If you have that situation, renewables are, can be small scale and local. The significance of that is that because they're local, you don't need massive gas grids. And this dramatically reduces the cost of providing electricity to rural areas. If you go back 20 or 25 years, there was a big debate about telephone networks in Africa. And everybody said, oh, you'll never get good telephone networks in Africa. It's too big geographically. And so you'll need too many miles of wire. Well, of course, today you have an excellent network of phones in Africa because of the change in technology, because of Wi-Fi and all the other elements of this. And so while I'm not suggesting that oil and gas are going to disappear in the near future. As we go forward, if the transition speeds up, it's going to have significant impacts, particularly on the issue of peak oil. Now, in the 1990s, peak oil was a big issue, but that was peak oil supply which was always a nonsense idea. You can't talk about future supply of a commodity and say nothing about technology and price, which is what the peak oil argument effectively did. But what you're likely to see 
is peak oil demand. Now, we've already seen this in the OECD countries. Oil demand peaked in 2007. As we go forward, we're likely to see a peak coming sooner than many people actually think, which will lead to a significant reduction in energy, in oil demand. The interesting question is not so much when will oil demand peak, is what happens after it peaks? Will there be a slow, gentle plateau decline, or will it be more cliff-like? Now, I'm more inclined to the cliff-like arguments as we go forward. Why is that? Well, simply because once you kick these things off, then the technology means that renewables, which are already cheaper than fossil fuel power generation, become much cheaper. And so you start to see, as I say, it's the reinforcing factors. Uh, the technical change lowers the relative cost of energy. And so all of a sudden, the renewables become more attractive, particularly if you add to it the security of supply dimension. This is a key point, if you like. The interesting question is how long will the blip last? We're already yeah. seeing a return to coal, nuclear plant that was due to be decommissioned is probably going to have their lives extended. Now, how long that blip lasts will in part depend upon how long the war in Ukraine lasts. On this, I have no idea. It's not my field of specialism, but I suspect it's going to be likely to be a, a long drawn out affair, which means the blip might last longer. But we're talking about a few years here. We're not talking about decades. I mean, this sounds like a relatively optimistic picture in terms of how oil demand will decrease. But there's been some news recently about big oil companies like BP really bringing down the amount they're spending on investment in renewables, which sounds quite threatening in terms of how they see that market changing. Yeah, the, the, the point here, I think, is that when it comes to the large international oil companies, there's been a lot of so-called greenwash. In other words, PR, yes, we're going to be green. But the reality there is quite simple. There is no little or no economic rent in renewables. Now, I need to explain this. And I'm sorry, I'm going to have to give you an economics 101 moment. There's a huge amount of economic rent in the oil price. One only has to see the profits being made in the last year or so by large oil companies to see that. Now, that excess profit comes from two sources. The first is if you've got access to low cost production, you've got a lot of what economists call producer surplus. Also, if you have a controlled market, and the market has effectively been controlled by OPEC, although sometimes not so effectively, then you have a lot of what economists call supernormal profit. So there is a huge amount of economic rent in the oil price, which means that the big companies can keep their shareholders happy. However, all this talk about them moving to renewables creates a problem. While renewables are profitable, otherwise people wouldn't invest in them, you're never going to make the same sort of level of profit that you can by producing crude oil. The significance of that is the oil companies are looking for economic rent. 
If there's none in renewables, they're going to have a serious problem in keeping their shareholders happy. They've been able to keep their shareholders happy through a process of increasing the share price by buybacks and higher dividends. But if they don't get the rent from the oil, they're going to have trouble. They're going to struggle to survive, which is one of the reasons you're seeing this process of a lot of the talk about investing in green energy and renewable energy is going out the window fairly rapidly. So don't hold your breath on that one. And do you think that oil demand can be brought down enough to reach net zero targets? Not net zero, no. To be perfectly honest, I think that's very unrealistic. But it can certainly be reduced very significantly from current levels. To get to net zero, you're only going to be able to do that by an extensive use of renewables, which it will happen, but it's not going to happen overnight. We're not going to see a collapse in oil demand in the next 10 years. We'll see a decline, but it's unlikely to fall off the edge of a cliff. I think that what many people looking at this sector say is just a really simple way to bring about increased use of renewables and bring down the amount of oil we use and bring down the amount of fossil fuel hydrocarbons we use would be an international approach to a carbon tax. And why is that so hard, do you think? I mean, a carbon tax would be an ideal solution to really speed up the move away from fossil fuels towards renewables. But to get an effective carbon tax, you really do need an international approach. And the reason for this is very simple. If you impose a significant carbon tax, then you put yourself as a competitive disadvantage in terms of global export markets for, for manufactured goods. And therefore, there is a temptation of producers, and I'm thinking of here of countries like China and India, to sort of not put carbon taxes on. And you see, again, you saw this in the 1970s with the oil price shocks. And in the 1970s, because of those oil price shocks, heavy industry pretty well moved away from its traditional sources, such as Western Europe, into developing economies. Now, can we get some sort of international agreement on carbon tax? I'm not very hopeful. If you look at the experience of the last few COP meetings, they sort of more or less turned into a sort of oil industry exhibition show, and very little actually happened effectively. There was a lot of talk uh, and a lot of promises were made. But to get a real carbon tax, you're going to need an international approach to it. And this is going to be very difficult to achieve. But I don't think a carbon tax is necessarily crucial to the story. Because as I say, if the cost of renewables keeps on coming down, then that will be sufficient to encourage the move to renewables. And the next COP will be held in the United Arab Emirates. How has that happened and how can we loosen the hold that fossil fuel companies have on the COP processes? With great difficulty, I think, is the short answer. The oil industry has always been extremely good at political lobbying. Um, it, it's turned it into a fine art. And you begin to see this in, in a lot of the COP meetings. And I don't see there's any likelihood that this is going to change in the near term. 
which means that they are going to be influencing governments. The point about COP is you do need to get some sort of agreements. So, for example, in the, the COP in Egypt, the division was very much between the industrial countries and the emerging market economies. And the basis of that division was the emerging market economies not unreasonably said, look, we didn't cause this problem. You, the industrialized countries, caused it. Therefore, can we have some compensation, please, to help us move towards a greener world? And of course, if you go to the industrialized countries and say, give us some money, understandably, they're not going to be very enthusiastic about that. And this is the these fundamental divisions will create a problem. Meanwhile, the energy crisis continues. And whether it's greenwash or not, most oil companies have drawn up some kind of climate change plan. Although we should note the global witness of this month, I think, urged the US regulator to investigate oil giants and potentially impose fines over mislabeling their investments arguing that in Shell's case, where they claim that 12% of their capital expenditure was funneled into a division called Renewables and Energy Solutions, only 1.5% of that capital was actually being used to develop genuine renewables. But I wanted to ask you, as I know that you've done some work in Saudi Arabia, and I was wondering what you thought of the oil giant Saudi Aramco in 2020, the Saudi government directed the company to increase its maximum sustainable capacity for fossil fuel production from 12 million barrels of oil per day to 13 million. And you wonder if the word sustainable there is being used fairly loosely. Yeah, if we're talking about Saudi Arabia, I think we need to make a distinction between Saudi Aramco, the national oil company, and the Saudi government. Saudi Aramco has always been extremely interested and aware of the issues of climate change. And I've spent a lot of time and effort trying to understand the drivers and the consequences of this. The problem is that the Saudi government depends upon the economic rent in the oil price for its survival. And the reason for this is very simple, because they, like a lot of the Middle East oil producers, have failed abysmally to diversify their economies. And the reason for this is complicated, but can be reduced to this rather simplistic view that says, if you're going to diversify an oil economy, you need a dynamic private sector. The problem is that in most of these countries, the government is so dominant economically, that the private sector tends to get frozen out. So, for example, Saudi Arabia has a fairly dynamic private sector, but much of what it does is done outside of Saudi Arabia. And the reason for this is because you don't really have a rule of law. There are no secure property rights. And without that sort of legal context, it's difficult for the private sector to to operate. And without the private sector being dynamic, diversification remains a problem. There have been a few countries, oil exporters, that have managed to diversify. Probably the most obvious example is Norway. The reason for this is because you have a dynamic private sector in Norway. And the reason for that is because you have very good property rights there. So the the government of Saudi Arabia faces a real problem. If it starts to move away from producing crude oil, it's going to lose the economic rent that it has secured 
from the production of crude oil. And that will cause them serious financial problems. They simply won't be able to provide the sort of services, subsidies, etc., that keep the domestic population happy. And that presents a serious problem. And it's not just Saudi Arabia. It's virtually all of the Gulf Cooperation Council countries this applies to. Do you think that fossil fuel companies are committed? I mean, we know that they're not committed to bringing down fossil fuel use in the short term because it's not in their interest. But are they even committed to bringing fossil fuel use down in the long term by the time that they have sorted out how to invest properly in renewables and how they can get a piece of that market too? Not really, because it's difficult to see how a large international oil company is going to be able to survive with its shareholders without the sort of economic rent to keep the shareholders happy. Don't misunderstand me. Renewables are profitable. Otherwise, people wouldn't invest in them. And there have been, you know, there's now more investment in renewables than there is in fossil fuels. But the reality is that you're not going to be able to keep the shareholders happy without the economic rent from oil prices. So in other words, what I'm saying is that the the oil companies are effectively doomed in the long term. They're not going to be able to survive. And there's nothing new in that. No company, no institution survives forever. The world changes. Now, there are some schools of thought that one of the reasons why companies and governments are dragging their heels on this is because they're not prepared to allow the balance of economic power that comes with domestic oil supply to shift. So, for example, North Africa presumably has much to gain in terms of its power to produce solar and wind energy. Yeah, I understand where you're coming from, but I think the idea that the geopolitics are going to change in favour of people who can produce solar and wind are a bit overstated. And the reason for this is simple. You mentioned North Africa and the idea that you've got a lot of solar in North Africa, so you generate electricity and then send it to Western Europe. The problem with that argument is if you look at a history of transit oil and gas pipelines, that history is very checkered, to say the least. They've led to a lot of conflict because they are very vulnerable. Well, in the same way that oil and gas pipelines are vulnerable, electricity wires are also potentially vulnerable. So the idea that Western Europe would be happy to become dependent upon electricity out of North Africa, I think is rather overstated. It certainly will change some aspects of the geopolitics of energy. So, for example, the major oil producers will lose a large element of their leverage that they previously had. But that's not going to be replaced by anybody else in the sense that you're not going to suddenly start to see somebody dominating the renewables. Unless, of course, and there is this argument, which is that China has put itself in a position where it does have influence and control over many aspects of renewable energy. So, for example, I've seen some estimates that suggest that the Chinese control up to sort of 80% of solar power generation because of their control of the technology. But again, you can't keep a control of technology forever. It begins to fray around the edges. But it will certainly have significant geopolitical implications as oil demand begins to decline. No question of that. And finally, if I was going to 
ask you that really hard question and try and narrow you down to a time span for how long it's going to take oil demand to fall and renewables to rise, what would you say? The key question is not when oil demand peaks, because I think that's going to happen in the next 10 years. What's more interesting is what happens after it peaks. Will there be a slow, gentle decline or will it be much more dramatic decline? And I'm inclined to the more dramatic school of thought, simply on the grounds that history shows that once these things start, the technology begins to change so rapidly that it's likely to speed up the decline in oil demand. Oil demand's not going to disappear. For example, it's going to be a long, long time before you stop using oil in air transport, for example. And there are going to be other areas where oil will have a certain advantage. But it is going to decline. In terms of the sort of factors which will cause either a dramatic drop-off or, or a slower decline, what are those factors? If the fall in the cost of renewables continues on the path it's had for the last 10 years, it's very difficult to see that when the renewable energy really does become much cheaper, people are not going to be moving towards that. And I come back to the point I made about energy poverty as well. If you can turn about rural energy poverty, one of the best obvious solutions is to extend renewables because not having to pay for the grid, again, reduces the cost significantly. And in terms of the renewable options which are available, how do you see the split between solar and wind and nuclear? How do you see that panning out? Dad, I don't see nuclear as a renewable source. I don't particularly like nuclear, not for any safety reasons or environmental reasons, although they are quite important, but simply because history shows the private sector and nuclear do not get on particularly well together. I mean, there's only been one nuclear plant opened in Europe uh, in recent years, and that was sort of 25 years behind schedule and cost God knows how much over budget. Um, it's expensive. It's not really appropriate unless you get some sort of, again, I come back to technology. I mean, there's this issue of SMR, small, medium-sized reactors. Now, that could be something, but again, the technology has got to go a long way before that. Otherwise, I think it depends where you are, whether it's wind or solar. Some places have advantage with solar, some places have advantage with wind. Uh, and I think it's probably going to be the two of them together. I don't see one leaping ahead of the other. Although, as I say, it depends where you are. Of course, one of the problems with renewables is intermittency. But for example, in Western Europe, that's very much less of a problem because you have interconnectors all over the place and you don't have the sort of problem of transit lines that you did with oil and gas pipelines in Western Europe. And the reason for that is simply because in Western Europe, you have fairly secure property rights and a rule of law. So it's difficult to start breaking contracts in terms of that. So in Western Europe, intermittency is much less of a problem than it would be in other parts of the world. Um, we previously spoke about Russia at the beginning of the podcast, and I think 
one of the previous guests that we had on was saying that the projections for how oil consumption will continue over the next 10, 20, 30 years are inevitably very op- optimistic to the point of really over egging how much oil will will still be wanted by the global markets. But how do you think that the reality of how oil consumption demands will change fit into those projections? Well, they don't really. And it's not surprising that the the sort of the Russian side of the story says that oil demand and gas demand will increase forever and ever and ever, and they'll all live happily ever after. And uh, so it doesn't surprise me that they take that view. There's a degree of vested interest in there. But there's also an issue of how much they are aware of what's been happening in global energy markets. That's a debatable issue. So I just think that they're, they're, they're wrong, putting it simply. I don't think they're right. Well, that's all we have time for today. You've been listening to Paul Stevens, Professor of Petroleum Policy and Senior Research Fellow at Chatham House. We've been the Land and Climate Podcast. If you're interested in oil, have a look at our recommended reading in the information section below. If you like what you've heard, you can follow us on Twitter at Land Climate for more on all things economy, land and climate. This podcast was presented by Lauren Sneed and produced by Vasco Kostovsky. Mm-hmm.